Hello and welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. I am your host, Tom Richardson. And once again today, I am joined by Mr. Alex Pillow, a friend of the show and guest host for today's episode. Today, we're looking at the future of name screening in the second of two of a two-part series. If you didn't check out the first episode, I highly recommend that you do because we get into the genesis of the industry and some of the compelling events that brought it into being. Well worth a listen. But for now, I'm going to hand you over to Alex, who can introduce our first guests. Thanks, Tom. Uh, great to be back, and thanks for having me. I've uh, had some really good discussions uh, with the guys on, on this episode. I think after we look back the last two decades, it was really important to look forward and figure out what comes next. We know that the, the output from the industry, the, the results that customers use has got to a point now where it is not sustainable operationally and it's not as effective as we want it to be. So the next phase for this this niche of the KYC AML ecosystem um, is going to be really important. So who, who are these guys that we speak of? Um, well look we've spoken to three contributors all with different backgrounds and some divergent viewpoints on where this part of the RegTech world goes next. We'll hear from the last entrant to the market, Charlie D, founder of Comply Advantage. We'll hear from industry veteran Vincent White on why the future of screening may not require names. But firstly, let's hear from an old friend from episode one, Crystal, who remembers may recall was part of the industry when you had to burn the underlying databases onto CDs and seen it mature all the way to today's current API-led world. So we asked him, what does he think happens next? The the future state of name screening is, uh, as ever perhaps, going to be determined by what the regulations say and yeah. how um, they're enforced, what the regulatory expectations of effective compliance are and how they evolve. Um, so it, it, in, in that context, a lot of what goes on today will continue to go on until those regulations change. I think, though, that um, we are seeing more regulatory um, uh, encouragement for technology innovation in order to meet those regulations more effectively. Uh, and effectiveness um, is something which um, it shouldn't just be a substitute for um, people or older tech. It's aiming to lift the standard of overall compliance rather than just to make it more efficient. What areas of technology do you like the look of? What, what innovations, maybe I should say, do you like the look of? Um, I, I like the move towards, um, well, no, let's start again. Um, in general, the, the move towards um, more transparency in data and, and, and regulatory sources is, is good. I'm thinking in particularly of um, things like the um, European Union um, Payment Services Directive and, and the era of open banking, where we're seeing um, a bank's data assets becoming uh, a shared mm. um, asset across a community, for mm. example. Um, I'm thinking of the moves to provide more accessible and transparent ultimate beneficial ownership information. Um, and the, the number of 
government-sponsored um, or industry-sponsored um, utility initiatives, which again are about sharing information uh, and then using that wider data set to um, provide a, a more contextual or, or, or fuller view of the risk um, based on everyone's perspective rather than just the perspective of a single institution. So in, in terms of technology trends, I, I see um, the move to combining different um, data assets that come from you know, perhaps completely un unrelated areas or activities and then melding them all together to create that much fuller view uh, as being where a lot of the technology investments are going today. Um, have you seen that play out in the banks themselves? I, I, I say that I'm thinking of um, seeing reporting lines now where you have fraud, financial crime and cybersecurity all going into one individual. Yes, um, I think there have been maybe a couple of false starts with this because of, um, well, four or five years ago, perhaps longer, they, there was this concept of FRAML, fraud and AML moving together. That is an uh, awful acronym. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it does. It, uh, it is, it no is imagination. Um, but um, I, 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 I think now that there's a realisation that because uh, fraud and AML and all the other activities around reputation risk management, they often use the same data sets yeah. and they can each contribute something to the other as mm. well, which previously might have been locked away. So putting all those different facets to create something that's greater than the sum of the parts, I think is now key. Very good. With that sort of consolidation, um, potentially in banks or consolidation, but bringing together different teams, different levels of expertise, what do you make of both utility technology, for lack of a better term, inside individual institutions, mm -hmm. as well as sort of, there's obviously been reports and efforts made in certain parts of the world to create some level of utility in mm -hmm. KYC AML. Mm -hmm. What do you think to, to those efforts and trends that are going on? Sure, so the, the utility one is, is quite interesting. It's an area I've, I've worked in in the past. Um, I, I see the potential for utilities um, to be great. Um, but I've also seen some r really big problems in actually getting them off the ground. Um, and no, that, could be, that could be a fundamental issue, such as um, do we have the legal right to share data? Yeah. Um, can we actually make decisions based on this data? Um, or is that not going to be something which is acceptable to a regulator? Um, do we go for a, a centralized or decentralized model, which is really a key mm. Right, a key question. And uh, until some of those um, big fundamental questions uh, have been resolved and you've got the decisions in place, it's, it's, it's going to be really, really difficult to get some of these off the ground. Mm. But uh, uh, so that, that's the sort of regulatory side to it. Um, but in terms of technology, we, we know it works. Um, it's, um, it, I always compare the concept of a KYC utility to that of a credit bureau. Um, it's uh, quite similar. You've got uh, a, um, a diverse view of how a person or a company transacts, who they are, um, pr pr based on data from you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of different data providers, in the case known as vendors. Um, and pulling all that together to create a single view um, is achievable once you've got that technology and data in place. So mm -hmm. if, you, if you move that over to 
um, financial crime risk management, then you know, there are significant benefits. And uh, maybe one other thing to talk about, and it does sort of frustrate me slightly because very few people define it when they say it. What do you think to, for lack of a better term, AI machine learning? Oh, I've heard many different terms for this. Um, <laughs> and I, I've, I've learned that if you put two data scientists in a room to define artificial intelligence, they'll, they'll have a fight pretty, pretty soon. <laughs> a debate, maybe, is a kind of way to put it. <laughs> oh, no, it might go further. Um, oh. <laughs> um, the, so um, AI, um, robotic process automation, um, machine learning, okay, they're, they're heavily marketed terms. Mm. And they, they mean... Robotic auto, uh, automation, is the process automation, that one really gets me. I mean, what does that mean? Well, it's, well, in fact, we know yeah, what it means, yeah, but it yeah, doesn't yeah. even necessarily. Is it is it an, an attempt to sound like AI whilst not no, actually saying that we do AI? No, no. It, it, it's 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 meant to be something different than AI, right? Because it doesn't have that neural side to I, it. I think of it as rules based, which you can yeah. read, understand what it's doing, and it does it faster than a human. Yeah, AI machine learning done properly is just statistical models trying to mimic human behavior. But, but, you can't, but you can't necessarily understand what it's done. You can just assess the output. So this is why data scientists yeah. get so, so um, <laughs> energetic on this issue. Um, so I, I've, um, I've seen um, RPA described as AI because it's, um, the outcome of RPA is indistinguishable from that of a human. But it's not AI. So, going back to the question, do I see this? How do I see these technologies? Um, I, I previously uh, there was perhaps some ambivalence amongst regulators and banks of uh, around deploying this sort of stuff, particularly in an unsupervised mode, because there was a there was an apprehension of the potential results and accountability if something went mm. wrong. Um, but uh, now. A number of regulators are really investing in in their own skill sets so that they understand AI and everything else um, to a much fuller degree than they could have done previously, and that's enabling them to create guidance and and um, the the, you know, the right sort of uh, um, sandboxes and all those types of things for um, institutions to experiment and innovate. Um, within the aegis of the regulators framework. Really interesting to speak with Chris Hull there. Um, and he provided quite a holistic view, I guess, of not just name screening evolution, but the, the reg tech world as a whole, bringing different data sets together, potentially looking at how that could power utilities and the utility model. Um, so a really interesting perspective. The next interview uh, that Tom actually led is with the founder of the most recent entrance to market, uh, Charlie D. Um, let's see if he has a different perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I want to move away from is kind of just commoditizable technology frameworks, right? I, I think like like it's like it's like it's like 15 years ago saying we use SQL. Eventually, it's just a kind of subcomponent of technology, right? So I think yeah, I mean. I think any technology company today will use like AI and machine learning. It's not necessarily a special thing, right? It's about the overall technology strategy and using technology in practical, simple ways, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, and there's so many different dimensions to AI in terms of are you using like 
gradient descent are using logistic Russian using like natural language processing there's thousands of different ways it's like it's like electricity right like you know um, are using it to drive engines or or, or or motors or you know like I think like to fetishize AI is unhelpful um, so I think we have like a a 20-year roadmap of stuff we want to do right as in there's like an endless series of things and i think even 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 small things can take a long time to build right just things like non-functional requirements you can spend a year with a massive team just making it scale right so um i think just perfecting what we have now and then being able to expand the range of data the range of algorithms like you know you have deterministic matching and then probabilistic matching right like probabilistic matching is a huge endeavor in and of itself, right? Or doing biometric databases linked to names and entities. I think like there are numerous precedents you can look at in terms of utilities, like Chinese social credit, like the like, space is absolutely huge. And also the adjacencies in terms of corporate data, in terms of fraud, identity, like credit, like, you know, it's, it, it's a gigantic space that engulfs everything a business does. Great thoughts from Charlie there, and interesting to hear that you know, despite coming from in at different times in the industry, they both have a similar view that they'll need to uh, lots of areas need to come together for a sort of future financial crime prevention state, whether it be fraud, screening, identity verification, etc. Works nicely for the the RegTech Legends uh, podcast and future series. So uh, hopefully, Tom will have me back to uh, to speak to some other um, stakeholders from the sector. We're now going to move on to the discussion with Vincent White of Facepoint, who, as I mentioned in the intro, are actually screening but without names. Facepoint is simply uh, an AML or KYC screening tool based on no names. So instead of the traditional approach of taking the defining characteristics of an individual from their identity document, is their first and last name, their date of birth and nationality, their place of birth. Uh, we are taking a different element, uh, the facial, the image, um, as the cornerstone element of identity in order to do screening. Now, we're already very familiar with taking that part of biometric data for identity verification, and we're sort of one step ahead in terms of how that is used uh, for all manner of uh, mass market applications from unlocking your smartphone to border control and airports, uh, but this is simply the evolution to say, why don't we use that far more unique defining biometric characteristic as the keystone of identity for screening against watch lists or risk databases. Uh, we do now have performance data on biometrics. So this is a sort of the tail end in terms of dealing with match results and how good are those match results. We talk about false, false positives and false negatives um, with different labels depending on, on um, the context of the, and the, 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 the application, but the jargon is precision and recall. We want the best of both worlds. We don't want to have, uh, we want to have as high accuracy and precision as possible, and we don't want to miss any matches, but we don't want to have false positives. We don't want to have uh, things that are going to be incorrect, uh, which basically translate into a waste of uh, effort, time, resources, money. Now, we have performance data on, on biometrics and how, su how, much, how superior that is. So it's, it's not just that you have uh, a level of uniqueness which you don't have with human names. 
in terms of your, your face, your fingerprints, your iris, and so on. Uh, the performance data are now vastly improved in the last few years, um, such that we can achieve both that precision uh, and recall. And there is a popular misconception that biometrics uh, falls down and fails, it has a, uh, an ethnicity bias, an age bias, and those are things that have really um, progressed and uh, leapt forward in the last five years. And we have now you know, an integration with artificial, proper integration with artificial intelligence, machine learning, and so we can deal with all of the problems to do with poor quality image, images, poor lighting, pose, and we have a, a liveness in terms of biometric verification so that we actually get you know, a superior matching outcomes. So if you take that as, as a given, uh, and to go back to your question, what are the sort of practical uh, main appeal attractions of biometric ma matching versus alphanumeric? Well, you, you're, you're integrating the identity verification and doing that in one fell swoop. The biggest problem with watch list matching is that you first have a separate identity verification process to check that that person is who they say they are. Now, if you look at the, the, uh, the, the figures on identity fraud and account takeover, it's the highest level now. One of the biggest problems in KYC is that you will have simple uh, deception and you will have people who, who have stolen identities or masquerading as someone else to avoid detection uh, for a number of you know, criminal um, nefarious reasons. And so if you can basically cut to the quick and deal with something that is immutable, i.e. biometrics, um, then you overcome those problems. Now, uh, when I first got, got into this and I didn't, wasn't aware, I'd probably seen too many old uh, uh, films, I thought that you could do something to conceal your identity. Um, obviously, you can do it through disguises, and we see this in terms of uh, uh, protests in Hong Kong, in terms of protesters you visually uh, uh, concealing their faces or using LED, LEDs as a sort of distraction to surveillance cameras. Uh, but the, the more drastic... Um, changes to physiognomy through plastic surgery. I was not aware of this, but that's something that, you, that simply will not fall modern biometric technology. So that's not a solution to go off and try and get a new face because you are a narco kingpin and you want to avoid detection that way. So we have great successes in biometrics dealing with, with false identities. And we also overcome all of those linguistic problems to do with common names, homonyms, transliteration, syntax variants, all of the things that contribute to false positives, we simply transcend those by not using a, a name-based screening system. And then one final thing, and it's a particularly uh, a niggling problem for dealing with sanctions. Uh, I think this began with the, an Iranian sanction issued by OFAC, uh, the Venezuelan oil industry is another. At a, at a certain point, uh, there was a new kind of narrative or implicit sanction which uh, was open-ended. It was a sort of uh, an edict, don't do business with any entity connected to this particular sector, this terrorist group. Um, and that's a real a conundrum, a real dilemma of how can a name-based system effectively address these cases if you don't have a finite, exhaustive list of names. So with a biometric database and the biometric approach, you can at least categorize uh, at least individuals based on a connection to say a, a terrorist group without knowing their names. So essentially it's a, one of those uh, known unknowns or unknown unknowns. Um, if you want to have a really good KYC system then 
you want to also be aware of those risks where you can't establish someone's name, uh, date of birth, nationality, but all you have to go on is an image. And this is very much uh, the situation in uh, law solving law enforcement cases uh, where all you have to go on is a description of a, of a suspect. Um, and from that, uh, the other details are uh, necessary for prosecution uh, and further furthering that uh, pursuit of that, that, that perpetrator. Um, but the, the first, first things that they, the, the law enforcement have to go on are the physical characteristics of a suspect. Is it your view that in, say, 10 years' time, image screening will be the de facto standard, if you like, for, uh, for, for sanctions and pet screening? Uh, I think so. I, couldn't, I wouldn't like to put um, a time frame on it. I think initially it's going to be a very useful adjunct. Uh, we're going to find, particularly with those cases like narrative sanctions, that it's far more effective. Uh, I think our focus and our expertise, first and foremost, is, is on the counter-terrorism side. And what I would expect many firms to do is have some level of redundancy, which I know that they currently do with conventional list providers. You may be paying more because you want that extra comfort and you're, you know, you're okay that there's going to be some duplication and overlap. But you know that if you have uh, a belt and braces approach, you're going to have better coverage and thinking simply here in terms of a size of a database or how many PEPs does a database have, um, we'd see ourselves initially as uh, a very uh, uh, significant supplemental tool in terms of technology and in terms of underlying content. But yes, you know, uh, if we go far enough into the future, um, it's the same sort of questions that we've asked ourselves about paradigm shifts in terms of um, human-computer interfaces. Exactly, it's, it's exactly the same as the evolution in human-computer interfaces that at one point, well, let's say even pre-information uh, technology, we were talking about um, a quill or a stylus, then a pencil, then a pen, and then we have a step change to information technology and we have a human-computer interface that is a keyboard and then there's a, a novel uh, emergence of, of a mouse um, and then before we know, there's another step change, and it's um, uh, monitoring uh, pupil movements or even reading thoughts. So, so Facepoint is to the traditional way of doing things as uh, reading people's thoughts is to using a pen. Um, <laughs> that's that's a leap. I'd say it's probably it's probably a 0 0.5 uh, increment. So it's probably akin to the improvements or what was enabled going from keyboard to mouse. The mouse didn't replace the keyboard, but it became a useful yeah. adjunct. It's a very good point. The idea that so many of the challenges associated with collecting and maintaining accurate data could be transcended by image screening was a very interesting one. And I, I wanted to go back and just put that point to uh, Chris Ol and hear what he's got to say on it. Um, yes, I think you're right. Uh, the the main issue though why I think name screening is going to continue um, is because companies don't have faces. So for, 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 for people, I'm sure, um, electronic ID verification um, is going to advance and diminish the need for name screening. Um, 
However, there'll be places in the world where um, the storage and use of of um, biometrics isn't going to be permitted, or there might be consumers who don't want to give that up. So no screening for people will continue. I think that the um, the regulatory obligation, um, particularly for sanctions, will continue to be list-based for the considerable future, foreseeable future. Um, but yes, there's a clear trend towards using biometrics um, to identify a person, and that that will um, be a step for technology to evolve into name screening. So as we said at the start, um, the title of this episode, Name Screening is Dead, Long Live Name Screening, was slightly tongue-in-cheek. And I think hearing from uh, Vincent there, we can see that this is sort of complementary right now in terms of what Facepoint are doing and, and attempting to do. Um, what I would say, though, is that it seems like this is very much a fit for those looking to truly prevent bad actors, particularly those whose names are currently unknown. Um, be interesting to see how that plays out because doing it in addition means this might not be a, a fit for tick the boxes who are just trying to do enough rather than do their best in the fight against financial crime. So, Alex Pillow, we've heard from Chris Olcarea, we've heard from Charlie Dellingpole and Vincent White, but now it's time to turn the tables on you and get your views on what the future holds for name screening. I think the big challenge the industry's got is that it was designed initially for human investigators to use. We heard in episode one, Mike, Chris will talk about even just going through different lists or then Excel, uh, looking at that. That was all designed for text that humans read and match it against each other. And that was fairly small data sets comparative to today's databases that are in the, the many millions of bad actors. Um, those databases are only increasing. We heard Charlie talking about adding more and more and um, the other vendors in the space are certainly doing the same. So you're not gonna solve it from that angle. So what you've got to look at is the output and how it's processed. So if you can move the current text review where humans in most banks and other financial service businesses, any business that uses screening will review those alerts, can you get that to a numbers-based system so that you can operationalize it and make that assembly line effectively or um, you know, that output uh, be much more manageable for somebody to design a process around. So I suppose, to answer your question, what's, what's the future of name screening? I think it's doing more of the same better, but the output has to change from pure alerts to, to numbers. So I think if you were to, to speak to most practitioners, particularly those that that deal with the alerts from the various name screening systems, um, they'll tell you that there are ones that are really tough cases where they've got to try and figure out, is this, is this a true alert? Is it not? It looks like a true alert. Maybe yeah. it ends up being a false positive. There are others where to them it is quite obvious that this is a false positive and they question why it has been flagged yeah. to them. What you can now do with AI and machine learning and the various technologies that come under that broader umbrella is you can actually teach algorithms or machines effectively um, to make predictions of which ones will be false positives, which ones will be true alerts. But the input data to that is actually the, the, the decisions that these analysts have made over the last 20 years. So yep. effectively you train the machine to produce a number, a probability, 
um, of what the human would do presented the same information. Yeah. With that number, mm. you can then, once you've understood what, that, what the patterns of that are, which ones uh, marry up to the decision you wanted it to make, you can start setting thresholds and say, hey, below this score, I don't need to know. I don't need to see this. It's not worthy of a level two investigation within my organization. Because it's so obviously false positive. Exactly. Um, and a, maybe above a certain level, hey, actually, this looks like it would go straight to a level two reviewer. So we don't need a level one reviewer to look at this. Send it straight to the, uh, the upstairs, so to speak. Yeah so that they can go and do the additional work that will always require human investigators to perform. So, yeah, moving to a numbers-based system really is about producing an output along with the alerts that allows a uh, financial crime prevention program designer uh, for somebody who have to come up with a better job title than that. That deserves an acronym. Yeah. Um, Chris, if you can come back with Frammel <laughs> or some, something else, uh, or send in your ideas, listeners. Um, they've designed the system to output what they need to look at yeah. and suppress what they don't need to based on their previous decision. So obviously there'll be a rollout period, but I think that's, that actually solves the problem and creates capacity for more level two, level three work in AML and more prevention <clears throat> of, of illicit activity uh, within, the, within the system. I think Chris all made the point really well that generally the way this industry has worked for the last 20, 25 years is bad guys do stuff. Then eventually people notice and say that's bad. Then regulators eventually create a regulation for it. Then practitioners create a program to, to meet that regulation. Then it gets reviewed. Then we have uh, some people that fall short and get fined and then come up to standard. But whilst all of that's gone on, the the bad actors have already moved on. They, yeah. They've done the next thing. And I think that's why not only is there an efficiency problem in, in AML, there's also an effectiveness problem. So how you flip that round is actually going less pressure on the supervisor or the regulator, although they need to be part of the, the solution, part of the prevention. Um, and you move to a model where, hey, bad actors do stuff. Um, and it gets noticed by the industry and yeah. by society, um, by practitioners. That information, I think, can be shared. And there are groups like in, in the FinTech world, the FFE group um, based out of London, uh, do share these typologies in, in you know, a protected format. Um, then all the practitioners should already lift their standard. If the regulators then want to catch up, great, because there might be people that aren't in those bodies that, you know, that they can then uh, obliged to to come up to that level but i think the question is should our should our exposed industries should our um, financial crime prevention professionals actually not be seeking to get ahead of the curve rather than always chasing it yeah um, you're, you're talking about an always sort of corporate social responsibility um why would why would a, 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 a fintech or a bank be interested in doing that i guess it could ultimately be a, um, uh, a, a way of attracting customers, you know? Could be, could be. And, and also I think, yeah, I don't know the amount of budgets that are spent on CSR initiatives and, uh, you know, whether it be environmental, whether it be, um, you know, helping your community, etc. All those things are important. I'm not saying this is instead of, but I'm saying one of the best things you could do 
is to weed out criminals and prevent illicit gains um, because the reason they're doing it is for money um, yeah. and they have to process that money. Um, Natasha Vernier, who was at Monzo previously, um, had a great line that almost almost all crime um, is financial crime because it's done for monetary purposes, you know, excluding crimes of passion. Um, I think that's very true. So if you were to, to look at it that way, I would, I would argue that while the supervisor be involved and they should be aware of what people are doing, the supervisor tech is very interesting in terms of doing specifically name screening, but let's just call it KYC, AML, uh, financial crime prevention better. We've got to move to a more proactive rather than reactive model, where rather than waiting for the regulator to tell you what to do and then reaching that standard, you should be setting a new standard every day within your own organization. And when you do come up with something innovative, whether that be with your vendors, with your internal departments, um, that is catching more bad guys, then there then needs to be a model, to your point earlier, where that can be shared across other organizations. Because I think Chris all mentioned, you don't necessarily want um, prevention to be a competitive advantage. My argument would be you want to then make the operations a competitive advantage and say, can I now do that better than anyone else? Can I do it more efficiently? Can I do it faster, uh, et cetera? Um, but yeah, that would be my, my take, is that that's, that also needs to happen alongside the technologies evolving, but the technology will follow the customers. Yeah. If the customer asks for something different and they're willing to pay for it, then these companies will create things. Yeah. Um, but as long as everyone's happy to go as is, then there's less incentive for, for things to change. And from the conversations you're having with these institutions, are, are you sensing that it's going that way? I think in part, in part, I think there's lots of motivated people, there's lots of um, smart people that look at this, but there's also the, you know, we live in a market-based world, market-based system, and if the incentive is, or the disincentive is, hey, we're going to fine you if you don't reach this standard, then people are going to reach that standard and not going to look to do more. So, I mean, completely spitballing ideas here, but could there be um, certain forgiveness for, hey, look, you can build up credit where you catch bad guys. Does that count against any that do slip through your net as long as you have made demonstrate best effort, um, maybe? Is there... Uh, something you could do with the tax system and say the more you do on this stuff if we're recovering funds there'll be some uh, benefit there you've got to you've got to incentivize the right behaviors because whilst all the compliance professionals might they may be disagreeing 100 percent, but they they might they it's might a, be it's a fairly far out there idea they might be banging the table going yes we do need to be more preventative we do need to be less reactive etc but if i'm a ceo cfo and my primary job is shareholder return and nothing else then maybe i only care about not getting fined and they're, they're the guys that hold the budgets yeah um you could go down a different rabbit hole of should compliance uh, should the compliance of financial crime teams report to a ceo arguably not maybe they should report to the board maybe they should report directly to the, to the regulator but um you know way way above my pay grade yeah Okay, Alex, we went off on a, uh, albeit interesting, but um, slightly wild track there. Um, just coming back to, to Carissol's point about how it's currently regulation that drives the change, what do you see coming down the track over the next couple of years? Yeah, I think, I think the, the next big one, um, or the next 
sort of material change is this the six money laundering directive um yeah the seems to be sort of bringing them closer and closer together yeah. but i think that that reflects the amount of you know new crime typologies etc that are um making their way into our, our system um so the thing that i think the six money laundering directive does that changes name screening is it actually for the first time defines pred certain predicate offenses so 22 predicate offenses now Sometimes it's a pet peeve of mine. People talk about name screening as sanction and pep screening. Yeah. Because those are the two things that are defined that you have to do. There are other things it sort of infers you should do, but now there's actually going to be these 22 other things that you should be screening. And what that means is that for anyone that is still sort of stuck in, you know, as sort of tick the box, do my sanctions, perhaps don't worry about anything else, name screen environment, they will now have to do adverse media screening, in my view. Uh, I think that's a really good thing. It won't be a surprise to anyone that's ever dealt with me in a business environment that I think everyone should be doing adverse media screening and doing it well. Not everyone to the same extent because they have different risks in their businesses, different um, openings that criminals might use. So it can be tailored to the, the individual company. But that adverse media screening will bring in more workload because it opens up a much larger data set. So it kind of brings me back to my point, I think a lot of firms will then have to deal with that. They'll then have a choice. They can either invest in technology to deal with it, or they can hire lots of people. And we already know that way doesn't work yeah. because the banks have been down that road. They've learned the lesson and they're now coming back the other way with plans to reduce headcount in those, those departments. So my best guess is that the innovation that the vendors in some cases have already done it. They're just sort of looking for the market. Um, or they know the market's there but looking for the market to grow that technology is going to keep getting better and the adverse media screening that's going to produce more workload initially is then going to need to go through that process of those new products new technologies to make it manageable for for firms that are playing catch up and trying to build a if not world class screening program then at least a, a defensible one um, depending on their outlook on how much effort they should be putting into their, their anti-financial crime. So, you know, I've seen this um, in the, the fintech space, so which I mentioned, I think, in episode one with Mike, um, built up a lot of experience in where some of the fintechs were very open to going, okay, we want to not just be compliant, we actually want to be world-class operationally and we don't think the way to do that is to copy the existing model yeah we're going to do things slightly differently so there are some early adopters out there who have got outsized returns compared to their competitors on their compliance operations i think that will continue um, or i think that has to continue based on the workload that will come from the new regulation so in summary what is alex pillow's view on the future of name screening so two things on the operational level on the efficiency level it's going to be the proper application or sensible application of ai and machine learning to move that level one review process to a predictive score model and then on the actual you know, risk prevention fighting financial crime it's going to be combining the name screening data sets with other adjacent data sets in the RegTech ecosystem, whether that be uh, corporate data and, and linkages, um, whether that be identity verification, whether that be transaction monitoring and fraud data, um, 
And obviously, if Vincent and Facepoint and other companies that may come into that space are successful in, in building usable, um, powerful image databases, then that would be a welcome addition as well. Because then you get the holistic view of financial crime and you can then can make your genuine best effort at preventing it. Well, Alex, thank you very much for uh, guest hosting this episode of the RegTech Legends podcast. It's been great to get your views on, on the future of name screening. I think there's only one thing left to do, and that's to go and play golf. Let's do it. Well, that's it from us, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you found the the content interesting and educational. This is the first in a series of these types of uh, episodes that we're, we're going to be producing. So we're open to learning. If you've got any constructive criticism, then uh, we'd love to hear it. And if you've got any ideas for future series, then we'd love to hear it too. So uh, very open-minded there. Big, big thank you to the RegTech legends that took part in this show. Couldn't have done it without those guys. Some really interesting stories to to hear and companies to look out for. So check those guys out. Uh, thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Thank you.